Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I'm a filmmaker and a journalist and now I do a podcast. You sure do, and joining yeah. us tonight, um, he is the star of such films as A Horrible Way to Die and you're next, Mr. AJ Bowen. AJ, hello. Hi, hello <laughs> Hi, thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time to do this with us tonight. Yes, thank you, and a long time no speak. I know it's been years. It's been so long that I no longer had like a Skype account. And then I realized the last time that I used one was whenever we spoke. I think it was video chat. Yeah, I think that was like 20, like 2012 or something. It uh, was a long time ago. I have a four year old now and I didn't then. So. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a wife. Christ. Congratulations. Well, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so AJ, you've gone with uh, an interesting one tonight. Uh, Jaws, Jaws: The Revenge. I, yeah, yeah, you did. When you when you asked me about are there any movies, for whatever reason, it was immediately the first one that came up because I knew that when we would be talking would would be like post Halloween. So I started thinking about horror movies, and I've been such an ardent defender of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night Two. Right. That <laughs> I was like, I can't talk about that anymore. I've exhausted that one. Everyone already thinks I'm crazy. So I was like, what's the other one? And then I realized that like, there's always we're always going back and forth about what constitutes as a Christmas movie. Right. I'm able to consider First Blood a Christmas movie just because <laughs> the end of the movie there's Christmas lights everywhere. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and <laughs> so qualifies. I was like. So it's like, I actually have a really long history with Jaws the Revenge. And I've seen so many movies that over the years, as fans we've talked about, sort of like get reappraised. Like, God, you know what, Andy, the last time that we spoke, I bet that people didn't even like Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. But now it's like revered as consistently one of the top two or three in that franchise. And um, there's movies that are looked upon a lot more favorably than they were back then. And I guess... I've always been surprised that lately it seems like people have been awfully kind to Jaws 3D, and I don't understand that <laughs> okay. at all, and I've never understood that. And I recently was speaking um, with the guys that designed the shot at the end when in Jaws 3D when the shark smiles before breaking the glass. <laughs> and I was like, that movie still sucks. That movie's always going to suck. And I've actually talked about uh, Jaws the Revenge before. I have a super long history with it because I'm about to be 41. So that means that when the movie came out, my dad took me to see it. So I had to be just, I think it was 87 when it came out. That's right. And I was just shy of 10 years old when it did come out. And I loved it then. And I, and I have like a, it, it just was one of those, it's one of those movies that like secretly informs the sort of interest with movies in general for me that I could have only realized in retrospect for some really specific reasons why. And then as I got older and started understanding sort of like filmic language, and then as I started to decide to try to have a career in it, 
um, I kept going back to it and I was like, yeah, okay, I know there's no such thing as a perfect movie. Every movie has flaws. <laughs> and Jaws the Revenge, there's like literally to me, there's like literally one flaw with it, right. which is unfortunate for the movie since it's a movie called Jaws. Um, <laughs> but everything else about it from a filmmaking and story structure perspective is so strong that I'm like, yeah. There's literally one problem with Jaws the Revenge, and the problem with it happens to be the haunted shark. Um, <laughs> and that's a significant problem when your movie is about a haunted shark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but there's just so many things. like So with, when the movie came out, like I said, I was just shy of 10, and I became obsessed with it for a number of reasons because like I, by that point, was starting to sneak horror movies. I wasn't really allowed to watch horror movies when I was a kid. I had to sneak them at my friends' houses. And, but by that time, I was really well-versed on certain franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and especially Friday the 13th, um, which was just a special, is just the special one for me. And part of it's because I grew up in Georgia. And when I was a Boy Scout, I happened to go to a camp where they had just, I was there like a week after they had wrapped shooting Jason Lives. Oh, and hey. I knew it. Yeah. And so I've always been obsessed with that. So when people talk to me, like I don't geek out a lot. I've been fortunate to work with a lot of people that I like worshipped when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But the person that I got most nervous talking to a few years back, you know, it's not not Fred Decker. It's it was Tom McLaughlin because I was such a nerd about Jason Lives, and I'm like, that's a perfect movie. I know I just said there's no such thing as a perfect movie, but Jason Lives is a perfect movie. Again, it's got a similar problem to me. As Jaws the Revenge, the only problem that I have with Jason Lives is um, is maybe the Jason design work in it. Right. And in okay. Jaws the Revenge, the only problem that – there's there's a few leaps in logic that I think that like audiences don't forgive. They'll forgive Jaws 2 when there just happens to be another shark. And that's another movie for another time that I would defend. <laughs> I think that that's like – that's like an early perfect slasher film. I think that one came out in like 78. Yeah. And if you just replace like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees with a shark, that's pretty much what Jaws 2 is. It's like the shark is this slasher killer picking off uh, reckless teens. And then <laughs> Chief Brody becomes Dr. Loomis in that when he knows how crazy the shark is and he loses his job and everyone thinks he's insane and he has to go fight the shark. I've thought about this too much. It makes perfect sense. I, I, genuinely, I genuinely just feel like the rest of the world is underthinking it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I saw Jaws the Revenge and I got obsessed. And that was also at exactly the same time I learned about this other thing about movies that I didn't know about. And that was novelizations okay. of films. And it's funny because I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, California right now holding my copy of the novelization of Jaws the Revenge that I got in 1987. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm presuming that's a, that's a well-thumbed book. Uh, it's incredibly well-thumbed. And as a matter of fact, I have on Amazon purchased um, this novelization. It's crazy how many are available. You, you would think that, that these would be super high value and they would be there would be a large demand for them considering how excellent it is unequivocally. <laughs> But I have more than one copy of this book. That's what's crazy. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about it years ago, and they thought they were giving me some sort of kitschy joke book gift. And I got it and was sincerely grateful and was like, <laughs> I appreciate it so much. This is really great. I already have this. But who, who wants only one copy of Jaws and Revenge's novelization? 
I'll definitely take your used acceptable copy that on the inside (laughs) says Mitchell Berry, whoever, if he's still out there, Mitchell Berry, I have your original Jaws the Revenge novelization. And uh, I don't agree with the notes that you've made inside it, but you know. (laughs) 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 What's crazy about it is that I don't know. So the novelization is so crazy different. And and that's sort of like a thing. I kind of collect novelizations of of movies that people don't want the novelizations for. Okay. I have the novelization for Jason lives. Right. And in that one, you discover that like what they were setting up was Jason's father to still be alive and being a really bad man. And that would have been very interesting to try to put in that movie, but it wouldn't have worked. And the other, but way crazier is the novelization of Jaws the Revenge. And it's clear that what they were trying to do is explain a few things that the movie doesn't even attempt to explain, the biggest thing that the movie doesn't attempt to explain, and that's why people don't like it. Um, I can get into that if you want, well, yeah, but, but I feel like I've been bogarting the conversation. No, I, think that's, I, think it's, I think it's good to know that we've got that reference material there, and uh, we can uh, dip in if there's anything that you think is certainly salient. Yeah, I also might ask some questions about whether or not the novelization addresses some questions I have about the film as well. Yeah, like, I would love to hear what you guys think about it, because I've, <laughs> I have a feeling that I'm all alone on this one. I normally have a handful of people that are like, with all of the movies that I love, that are like, yeah, yeah, we totally agree with you. We just can't say it publicly. Um, <laughs> but nobody, nobody agrees with me about Jaws the Revenge. One thing that we do kind of make everyone that comes on do, mm-hmm. we're going to try it on you right now, is Andy's going to put 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to count you in. And I want to take a minute, I want to preface this by saying that everyone who gets this wrong gets it wrong because they don't appreciate how quickly 30 seconds disappears. But basically, what we're going to ask you to do is, on the count of three, um, give us your best 30-second synopsis of Jaws of Revenge. That's that's not a problem. <laughs> I had a feeling it might not be. Um, okay, I was going to ask you if you need a moment to gather your thoughts. I don't feel like you do. Um, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much off book for the movie. I think I have every every piece of dialogue memorized. Okay. Um, <laughs> right, right. Are you ready to go? Yes. Of course you are. One, two, three, go. Jaws the Revenge opens a few days before Christmas 1987 in the lovely uh, town of, or on Amity Island. And um, it starts off with Chief Brody's son, Sean Brody, who's now taken over his job in Amity as the, as the main uh, sheriff guy. Um, and unfortunately for him, he has to clean a piece of driftwood and he gets eaten by a haunted shark. <laughs> this upsets Alan Brody and causes... Time. That was 30 seconds? That was, that 30, was 30 seconds. seconds. Seriously, it doesn't fuck about it. <laughs> you can tell that I'm an actor because I was like setting up so much uh, expositional story to make That's sense of it. That's where people fall down with this particular segment of, the, of, of our show. Honestly, uh, I did get... say Haunted Shark. I well, should have just said... I, I think if you'd I left should've... it there, that, was, that would have been perfect. <laughs> I should have just said, it's about a Haunted Shark attacking Ellen Brody and they fight. Yeah, like and it's the, got an Oscar winner and yeah. everything else is, <laughs> yeah. and a questionable and a questionable Jamaican accent by Mario Van Peebles. Oh, a super questionable Jamaican super, accent. Oh, that's great. Right, let's get on about this. Bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I quite like the opening sequence of this. I think it's the most effective part in the film. Like, I guess the most sustainedly kind of tension-filled part. When I when I knew we were going to be talking about it, and I started thinking about it, I was like, "There's actually." I'm not trying to put it on the level of screen. But there's, because it's not that, because it's not like there was a celebrity, a famous person that got killed in the opening minutes. 
but it did do a thing that that they were doing in the mid 80s at least with horror film franchises um specifically things like um you know they started it with friday and the nightmare franchise did a really good job with it in um both dream warriors and dream master Mm -hmm. where they would take some of the central characters from a movie from the movie before that the audience already had sort of an emotional investment in and they just kind of take them out and it was a bold choice to introduce you to like little sean brody who was like a baby in the first movie who was a little boy saved by a woman who was eaten by a shark in jaws 2 and um they just they also completely retconned jaws 3 which was an interesting thing yeah totally which was an interesting thing they were like we know we told you a bunch of silly shit in jaws 3 but we were on a lot of cocaine and that was some really ridiculous shit so we're just gonna act like that one didn't happen yeah yeah so so yeah and the other thing that they did too like to go into your point like and one of the reasons that i like so much of jaws the revenge is because it suddenly felt again like a jaws movie yeah and i know there were only four jaws movies but it suddenly felt like it was related to the first two whereas the third one was not (laughs) no 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 no. like it's very clear now that it's crazy that they decided to start making jaws 3 based on that spoof movie script um (laughs) and jaws the revenge you know like they had the guy who seemed to be like waiting his whole life who was working on the first couple of movies it was like getting a shot to make it and he was like okay so we need it to be we need it to be – I don't know why they made the choice for it to be around Christmas other yeah. than the reason that a lot of people do, which is like, you know what's cool? Spooky Christmas shit. Because <laughs> um, that's always the first thing as a writer. You know, like I'm getting ready to make a movie and we, we actually waited a whole year to make it so that we could make it set around Christmas. Right. And that's literally the reason why we waited almost an entire year because we didn't make the window last year. So we were like, okay, we'll just do it next holidays. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way that that stuff works so well, you know, like Black Christmas does it so well, where it's like it's supposed to be a heartwarming time and the warm, diffused, colorful lights. And especially like in the beginning of Jaws, the revenge, um, the children's choir singing. I don't know why they were singing on the dock. No, no, no. no. Oh, but, yeah. Um, Baffling. <laughs> <laughs> but why not? It happens. Yeah. Um, uh, Amity is a zany place, but yeah. So the opening, like, it's letting you know, like, we're. T- <laughs> it's crazy to say this, but I, I stand by it. It's like they were saying, just so you know, we're taking this shit seriously. <laughs> yeah. um, I I think the film does an unbelievable amount of expositional heavy lifting before we lose Sean. Like, see, obviously, because you kind of get introduced, you get reintroduced, if you like, to Ellen and Sean both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think like all that stuff is fine, but. Um, when the phone call comes in from uh, the other son, Michael's daughter, Thea. Yeah. Thea. Uh, like, yeah. like uh, dialogue-wise, it's trying to do a kind of previously on Jaws kind of thing. It's, like, it's kind of just trying to stuff in as much stuff to get you as caught up as possible, as quickly as possible, on what everyone's been doing in the intervening years. That's right, yeah. Yeah, you can tell that the that it's a writer that's like going, no, 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 this franchise has value. There's so much packed into... We know that Brody's died of a heart attack. Uh, they and the, we and they take such care to sort of try to emotionally manipulate us into feeling deeply for these characters again by like bringing in original actors from the first two Jaws films. That's right, yeah. mm-hmm. It's just in kind of like the background. So like after Sean gets eaten by the haunted shark, all of the women that are at uh, Ellen Brody's house. That's right, They're yeah. all the actors from the first two films, including Alex Kittner's mom. Alex Kittner's mom, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Obviously. So they're all just kind of there. And it's clear that they were like, but you know what we need to do? We need to get this. We need to get this down to Jamaica so that it's nice and warm. We need to get the hell out of Amity. It's too cold. It's too hard to make a movie in the cold. So let's go down in the warm waters. Oh, wait. Great white sharks don't go down there. Okay, you know what we'll do? We'll make the shark haunted. <laughs> this time <laughs> this time it's personal. Yeah. So, uh, uh, after screaming all his dialogue, you're right in saying that uh, yeah, Sean does go out into the into the bay to remove this massive log from a, like a, a marker in the water. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as we can expect, he is uh, offed by a shark that seems to just launch itself through the air, <laughs> like kind of like a toothy <laughs> missile. Uh, just it's constantly flying, flying by. <laughs> I love that part of it. It's it's crazy. The physics of the sharks in all of the Jaws films don't make any sense. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, like even in the first film, which has got to be, if you consider it a horror film, and I do, has got to I be do. one of the greatest horror films ever made. It's it's up. It's in the conversation. I'm not saying that it's the best. I'm not saying that it's in the top three or four, but it's definitely in the top ten if you consider it a horror film. Just structurally, what it's all about, and even that one, you see the shark it looks one way on top of the water, and then when they intersperse it with the shots of the real shark that they got, it does not. It's not the same animal. It's not the same shape. <laughs> And Jaws 2, they're like, oh, that's the, the only reason that I'm convinced the only reason in Jaws 2 that they made it a mother, they were like, that first one was a male, but the mothers are much more bigger than the yeah. territorial. So, and, and they do the same thing with Jaws 3. And it was getting to the point in Jaws 3 where you're like, the next thing, they're going to say that this shark is over 100 feet long. <laughs> they're just going to, they're going to, they're going to have to. Um, and what the, what, who, the shark that they show later on in Jaws the Revenge, I don't know how it was able, I agree with you, Andy, I don't know how it was able to fly out of the water and very cleanly rip one arm off. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like Sean almost didn't know what happened. Yeah, because like. There's no even meat outside of it. It's just like he just ripped off his slicker in the arm. Yeah, and Sean's like, "Oh shit!" That happened so oh, fast. Oh shit! What happened? To oh god! Oh no! My arm! Where the fuck did that go? I'm gonna need that. And then he... and, and and it's like the shark, the shark that is able to whenever it wants to like eat boats. Um, somehow yeah. it can't figure out how to how to tip over the little policeman dinghy, but. With this one, it's like, as long as it's Sean, I just, I'm going to, what the plan is, I'm going to rip this dude's arm off, right? I've been waiting here for 11 years. Yeah. He's grown now. Ha ha, he got back in the water. I'm going to rip one of his arms off. And then what's going to happen is he's probably going to freak out. He's going to freak the fuck out. And when he leans over the side of the boat, that's when I'm going to come in and take him. <laughs> he's screaming and screaming and screaming. Uh, all of which is drowned out by the carol singers singing the same fucking lines of the last Noel, just over and over the same fucking lines. Like, learn the rest of the song. <laughs> so what I would say is that that's a criticism for the carolers, not for the actual film Jaws: The Revenge. <laughs> no, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but then Sean's boat. Uh, Sean obviously falls into the water, and he's uh, I guess he's taken by Bruce the toothy puppet. But then his boat inexplicably sinks. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like some sort of weird, like three dollar Ahab thing that they're trying to do. I think <laughs> totally. Yeah, like I feel like that's what it was. Where they were like, by the way, the dreams, and 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 let's boil it down really to so what it is. They're saying that because Chief Brody killed two sharks mm -hmm. 
five years apart, according to the to the timeline of the film franchise. Of course, yeah. He killed two separate sharks five years apart, ten years before. That this collection of sort of like East Coast New England great white sharks, their 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 gang, they get together and they're like. This whole family's got to go down. Genuinely, genuinely, my favorite thing about this film is the fact that sharks can be so Machiavellian and plotting this like long-form <laughs> revenge plot is treated as such a credible theory all the way through. Is genuinely one of my it's, favorite things about it. <laughs> well, the, the amazing thing about it is that half of the novelization is a, about why. Right. And I, I want. I just want to say really quickly that uh, to sort of reference it, I, I'm similar without saying anything negative about the new Halloween film. Right. When I got when I finally got to see it, my thought was, okay, the entire structure of this whole film of Halloween 2018 is about two things. The whole story has to happen to one, get Michael Myers free and back to Haddonfield, and two, to figure out how to get him to where Laurie Strode is. Because yep. we really like this one continuous shot that we got with him back in Haddonfield. But unfortunately, Jamie Lee lives on a compound about 30 miles outside of town. So the rest of the story exists to get them together. And um, I think that that's on its nose that Jaws the Revenge is like, okay, well, we've got this family. And, and that's a, one of those things that's really interesting to me because they're like, it has to be about them, right? Because it had to be about the Brodies, that, and that's literally why, mm -hmm. uh, because it has to be about the Brodies, who you think would have moved to the center of America to yeah. get away from yeah, any salt water. Yeah, somewhere landlocked, you'd, you'd think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They should live in Kansas. But no, they stayed on Amity. <laughs> and except for the one who was actually old enough to really remember being attacked by a shark a couple of times. And he was like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to become a marine biologist. <laughs> and that honestly, that honestly made a lot more sense to me as a kid and now then Michael Brody decides to become a mechanic at SeaWorld. Yeah. Like yeah. that one that one didn't make any sense. Developing a fascination for that stuff because of the problems that he had as a kid, that makes sense to me. But that whole movie exists because they made a choice early on to go, all right, well the Brodies have to be in it. Well, how the fuck do we do that? Uh, <laughs> do you have any ideas? Uh, I don't know, haunted shark? Yeah, that that works. <laughs> and then the rest of the movie is like figuring out how to make sense of a couple of the set pieces that it seems like they decided on ahead of time. Yeah. The book goes into great detail. There is not <laughs> the shark is not haunted in Jaws the Revenge novelization. Right. Okay. It's a very different scenario. I mean, I guess it kind of is, but it gives like you even go into the mind of the shark at one point in Jaws the Revenge. Okay. Um into the shark's thoughts. Just for a moment, there's one spot in it. And I got to be honest, I haven't reread it in a long time. I'm a dad now. I don't have a lot of free time sure. uh -huh. to sit down and reread Jaws the Revenge's novelization. But I was sort of tickled by it when I was younger, by uh, the choice, some of the choices that they made. And at the time, you know, like I, I had read, I'd seen Jaws and then obviously I was like obsessed and wanted to read uh, Peter Benchley's book. And so that's what I mean by like, because I read... I read the original Jaws uh -huh. right after seeing um, Jaws the Revenge. So that's when I started understanding as a 10-year-old like the correlation between novels, different forms of art, different mediums of art, and what works in one and what doesn't work in the other. Mm -hmm. And why us as fans usually when we see something adapted from something that we love that wasn't a movie before or if we see a remake of something that we love, um, we're usually hypercritical of it. Especially when it comes to books, because 
we made the movie in our mind with just the words. So anything that sort of defies our interpretation of that text, we criticize mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, if I had read Peter Benchley's Jaws before I saw the movie, if I was older and I'd read it, I would have been like, this movie sucks because in the, in the book, Brody's a fat, bald, alcoholic asshole husband. Yep. Uh, Matt Hooper's an arrogant prick who He's has an affair, affair with Ellen yeah, Brody. Right, yeah. He gets eaten by the shark. They go in and out every day in the water and that really is an ahab thing with quint he doesn't even get eaten by the shark he's the one that ends up killing it he just gets drowned by the shark um and drugged like the like the buckets like the uh, drums mm. uh so and all of that stuff had an impact on me at a very young age or at about 10 with that and with um with seeing jaws the revenge at that age and then reading the novelization of it and just sort of my understanding of the way that that long form like sort of franchise films work and what it, what it means to try to translate something into a visual medium and and understanding like and that moment's also always a time capsule because I think when I go back and look at Jaws the Revenge I see a lot of like 80s franchise slasher tropes in it right yeah I mean like we were talking about that's why Sean they're like okay we'll kill we'll, we got to kill one of the Brodies let's kill the brother and uh, the younger one and then we get to show how he became like Brody, so that they try to basically make you feel like Martin Brody was personally eaten there. Um, <laughs> the shark beat Martin Brody by even having Sean be reluctant to go into the water. I don't like going in the water. Ah, okay, I'll do it. That's fine. And by the way, here's my fiance. She's beautiful. We have a wonderful life here with my mom. Uh, that got ruined. And them trying to fit in a bunch of stuff. There's just a lot that's to me is like really similar to a lot of those uh, longer franchises that were getting, you know, into movie three and four by the time Jaws the Revenge came out in 87. I think that one, the film does a reasonable, like a pretty good job of establishing Sean as a likable character before he's killed. Uh -huh. Yeah, which is crazy because that's like under 10 minutes, right? That's in like minute seven of the movie, I think, when he gets eaten. Yeah, or something it's, it's, close. It's, it's pretty rapid, yeah. And then um, uh, I also think that like um, Ellen when she's kind of trying to rationalize his death. Yeah. Her interpretation of the shark involvement is pretty extreme because, like, when she's talking about it, she... That's, like, the first time we really get the notion that she thinks it's, like, a revenge thing. <laughs> because when she goes... Yeah. To, when she goes to talk to... Oh, sorry, when Michael comes to her, the first thing that... I, th I think one of the first things that we hear her saying to him is, like, oh, it came for him. It waited, then it came for him. And then, yeah. she, and then she also then goes on to talk about the fact that she also blames... Because, I mean, I think it's, it's established, isn't it, that Martin died of a heart attack. Yeah. Well, see, that's what I was going to that's what I say was like an interesting to, like exactly what you were saying earlier about how much they fit into the story and like the first act of the film. Like they do so much. And there's that one specific line because it's, it's what you're referencing now is when she's like, he came through, he killed your father and killed your brother. And, and he gives more exposition for us because we're wondering why our main dude is not in the movie. And he's like, dad died of a heart attack. And then, she, <laughs> she, and then she but she blames it on his feet of sharks. Mm hmm. <laughs> Like can... And so basically the movie is setting up this thing that's like really interesting and sort of like in gender questions uh, in the modern time where they're basically setting up the main character be this woman that nobody believes that she's just a crazy old woman. She has crazy thoughts and feelings and they don't let her, the audience kind of has an idea, but I, I don't think that they even, I think by the end of the movie, you're all, we're all like, oh yeah, the film decided to say that she was right all along and that it wasn't just some random shark. But they don't do it. They don't commit to it like that until they give Ellen Brody that hero shot after the banana boat death. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. You know? no. Like they do this. They do this like rack focus of her on the beach, and then she just turns around. Wait, wait. 
Sorry. <laughs> there's incoming missiles. Um, Let's go. Uh, she, just, she turns around, and suddenly it's like Ellen Ripley. She yeah, just turns absolutely. around, and she's all stoic, and her face is totally different. She just goes and straight up steals a boat. <laughs> <laughs> After what appears to be Sean being buried in the middle of the street in Amity, um, we, yeah. we kind of... There's not a lot of space, man. It's an island. That, that's true. That's true. you got to just put them put them. You know how many you people sharks have killed that they had to bury like half the people of? They're well, certainly, they've taken up less space on Amity, that's for sure. Yeah, it does uh, seem like he's buried in the central precinct. They could probably bury him in a, like, in a handbag. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Michael convinces Ellen, the best thing for you to do would be to fly over the sea and yeah. then come to yet another island and just kind of chill out in the sun for a while. But she agrees to relatively easily. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, very, very easily. They travel on the same day. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's quite adamant yeah. about that. Yeah. But and it's, it's a long distance to the Bahamas. And they put her on what looks like sort of like a crop duster plane. Hoagie. That's right, yeah. What a great name. Yeah. Hoagie. Hoagie. Yeah. Named after a sandwich. Uh, curmudgeon, <laughs> curmudgeonly English, we think. And so they're just like, maybe, maybe audiences will think that he was like in the Royal Air Force at some time and then got disillusioned. Oh, or or perhaps discharged because he's a reckless flyer. <laughs> he, he is a very reckless flyer. I would never let Thea uh, steer my plane. Yeah, I would never. I, he, yeah, just not a child. I wouldn't want like, a child fly me anywhere. He's the most stress-free dude in the world. Like throughout the whole movie, like he's not even stressed after the shark eats his plane. He just climbs up on the side of the boat and is like. <laughs> Damn shark ate my plane. <laughs> yeah, I, like I think that um, Michael Caine's hoagie is possibly one of the best examples of somebody who is completely chill in the face of some extreme circumstances. Because he's completely unwavering in the fact that he is so laid back, he's horizontal front to back in this film, unfazed from yeah, the off. He's like some sort of weird version of Crocodile Dundee. Like he's just <laughs> there's nothing about him. He's got all. They keep alluding to the whole film that he's got some sort of story that we really want to know. And the only thing that you really need to know about him is that he's a super chill dude that's really good at flying planes illegally. That's literally yeah. all you need to know about him. You're right, though. A, like a couple of times it's alluded to that he's got this really illustrious backstory with all these crazy anecdotes, but you never really properly like, you hear a couple of them. But like, yeah. It sounds yeah. like he's like, I, I want to see the story about that guy's life. It's also worth mentioning that, I know we just mentioned it there, but I think it bears repeated mention that this is Michael Caine. Oscar yeah, who, who couldn't Caine. receive his Oscar <laughs> that right. year he because was a... he was filming on location Jaws the Revenge. No way. Remember, is that, that's, really? That's why yeah. I was, that's why it's, uh, Jaws the Revenge is like a, a serious nexus for me as a professional filmmaker because I started learning about all of these things through the movie more or less because it was just that time. So I remember watching the Oscars uh, as a child and as someone, uh, it was a woman, I can't remember who, who had to accept his Oscar on his behalf and she straight up said it. They're like, Michael Caine can't be here. He's um, on location in the Bahamas filming Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> That was his de facto Oscar speech. <laughs> Apparently, um, he accepted the role after picking up the script, and the first line in the script was like, uh, exterior, Hawaii. And he was like, done, sold. Because he yeah. just wanted a holiday. Yeah, and they offered him a lot of money. I've heard him talk about it since, where he was like, he's like, I never saw the movie, but I have seen the house that it bought me. Yeah, that's right. Seriously. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I haven't gotten that opportunity yet, but uh, I would definitely take it. <laughs> oh, for sure. Definitely. Um, so Ellen gets to the Bahamas, and um, one thing I do kind of like that they do around this point is they have 
Ellen's kind of her fears and um, the way that everything that's happened to her, mm-hmm. kind of, and the way that informs how she looks at the world, that causes an argument almost immediately between uh, Michael's wife Carla and Thea, the daughter. Right. And yeah. It's, and I, th- I think that it's like quite a good moment because it makes her immediately aware that she's kind of being an imposition on them, and because she's yeah. kind of like, and like because she's got all these kind of problems that she's introduced to the fray. And it's obviously it's going to be like a disruptive influence, whether she means it to be or not, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what, you know, like if I if I was to really get into it, one of the things when I was saying that, like, there seems to be one serious problem with Jaws of Revenge and it's the haunted shark. And the reason that I say that is because if you remove the shark and it's just a family drama, there's pretty good, realistically grounded family drama happening in oh, the yeah. whole movie. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting uh, family dynamic with Michael's family. And there's interesting conflict between him and his wife and him being sort of like an absent father while he's dealing with this stuff with Jake. There's this interesting uh, late in life romance between Ellen and Hoagie. All of that stuff is like legitimately interesting, well shot, well edited, well performed, surprisingly. And then there's just this unfortunate business that about every eight minutes or so, they got to get back to a haunted shark. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, like, we're, we're kind of cannonballing right. into that quite quickly with the first kind of appearance of Mario Van Peebles as uh, intrepid marine biologist Jake. Yeah, he's like kind of Michael's right-hand man, isn't he? Yeah, also doing a fantastic impression of Sebastian the Crab. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. He's, uh, I loved Jake as, as a 10-year-old. I still do. I just hey, <laughs> and in my mind, it's like this sort of like patently racist thing. Yeah. <laughs> like every time his voice, hey, Michael, everything going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also super smart. He has a great marriage. <laughs> he does have a great, so, he does have a great marriage. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's got he's got, they've got a great actor. Lynn Whitfield playing his wife. Yeah. So it, there's good stuff going on in there. Again, it's just like eventually they have to get back to how did this shark get to the Bahamas? Sharks don't like it. And they keep saying it where it's like if they just didn't say any of this stuff, I don't know if audiences would have felt differently about it. But they keep, it's almost like they keep anticipating every time uh, and someone watching the movie is going to go, well, what the fuck? I don't understand this part. Because whenever anyone would be thinking that, Michael Brody says something to be like, you're right. Sharks don't, great whites don't like warm water. And the audience is like, see, yeah, he's smart. He knows what's up. Wait, why is the shark down there, though? <laughs> yeah, it's like preempting questions. That There's that amazing that action. Just... <laughs> There's that amazing action sequence. Uh, like in a, I didn't know that there were sunken pirate ships in the Bahamas. But um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it becomes a haunted house story. For a moment, and he only is able to escape by using his oxygen tank. That's right. It, yeah. Like, and I, it was such a perfect age for me because I was like, oh, okay, well, if I ever get attacked by a shark, I'm just, I'll get out of there with my oxygen you tank. Just shoot, just like shoot me right up pike. to the surface. Yeah. 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 The uh, it's a it's a little bit ahead from where we are, but the sequence where um, the shark chases Michael through the ship. And yeah, he kind of gets he kind of gets dead ended, and the shark advances. I think that that's kind of I think that that shot individually is hilarious because I think that it's probably the most egregious of when the shark looks the worst. Yeah, and and let's be real, the shark looks rough. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah it, it, they they just decided to never have a real shark in this one. They're like, we're not going to shoot any B roll of real sharks <laughs> because 
We can't because there are no great white sharks in the Bahamas. So the laws of the, the universe don't allow us to shoot practically B-roll of this real shark. But we're just going to also show you a lot of this really shitty looking shark because no one's oh, figured man. out how to make a good looking real one yet. That's why Spielberg was... It's their Spielberg's so lucky that, that Bruce kept sinking and they had all sorts of problems because that's what made the movie so scary. And I was thinking about something after Andy and I first spoke about like, um, you know, when, when we talked about that it was going to be Jaws the Revenge, uh, that it never occurred to me before was like they were trying to answer. It's like they were trying to for how absurd the plot of this movie is, how absurd the conceit is. It's like they were trying to give us the um, John Williams theme music in real world scenario, which is why they were able to have his heartbeat. And whenever the shark gets closer, it's like burden, burden, Uh, burden, just like the theme. I never thought about that before. I was like, that sounds to me like a writer who's done some cocaine and is like super proud of what he just figured out. (laughs) He's like, okay, no, so that, so this makes it more, more tactile and palpably real that we don't even have to have the music there. It's just that they, the shark's getting closer, so they hear its heartbeat, and they're getting more stressed out. And I was like, that's another one of those. There's a lot of stuff in this movie where you're like, some, someone was really proud of himself for trying to figure out how to make a fourth Jaws movie. Like, there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, Mike, and, Mike and Jake primarily are there to kind of track, the, I guess, the mating cycle of Conk. Uh, <laughs> I believe so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah pretty easily swayed from that course uh, with, their, uh, with the arrival of Bruce the bloated, terribly slow tired looking shark I think one of my favourite moments is when Jake's in that submarine and the shark's just there beside him just kind of sidling along that is amazing yeah, because it also makes you realise you later on see how small this the submersible is that he's in which also is just to me at that age seemed like some future shit I wanted one of those so bad <laughs> I was like, what is this weird little submarine capsule? It's amazing. And then there's just this sort of like, it looks like it was a shark that's about the same size as this tiny thing that kind of had like a stroke or fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) It's just sort of like resting beside him. It's like the shark is like, I don't know, maybe the shark's really drunk and doesn't even know that he's down there, but he seems benign. Well, very much so. Well, yeah, like a super chill in that moment. But then seconds later, again, cannonballing vertically out of the sea towards Mike Brody's face. And at this moment, you get your first... Another thing that I've always wondered about this film, and it's something that you mentioned, Mitch, when we were watching it, was that um, there seems to be a very brief inkling that perhaps Ellen Brody and the shark have some kind of mind meld. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the psychic connection between Ellen and uh, the shark is seeded in a way that is very overt and then, to the best of my knowledge, never really explored again. Yeah, it's some sort of dark arts thing. There's some sort of mysticism that's never explained. She was out. She's out on the beach with Hoagie and they're dancing and having a good time. Michael gets attacked by the shark and all of a sudden Ellen's done having a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She feels it. But then maybe later on she does track the shark pretty easily and pretty quickly and massively open water. Yeah, yeah. that's no problem because the shark and her are symbiotic and she's like, I'm going to go a little far away from everybody and we can have a real conversation out here. <laughs> yep, they are on and the shark's like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool. I'll meet, up. I'll meet up with you. 
they all don't finish eating this conclusion. woman on the banana boat and then I'll see you out there. <laughs> <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, um, I think in, regardless of the fact, I mean, I think that, like the main thrust of the story is kind of largely seems to be Michael and Jake. But in a lot of ways, this is Alan's film. Very much so. Yeah. I think because, I mean... And I think Lorraine Gary's brilliant in it. Yeah, she yeah. does a good job. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like I think even just things like... um, It's not really... It's not addressed in a way that makes it sound like it's a significant moment or anything like that. But when she's out playing on the beach with uh, Thea... Yeah. In the moment you were just talking about, AJ. It's established at this point that she is... She has a hard time around bodies of water. And off the back of the fact that I think that one of the last things you saw her do was kind of have that moment where she panicked and she caused that argument between... um. Carla and Thea. Uh-huh. I mean, like, I remember when I saw that, it's like, well, fair play, you know, it's like she's, she's like trying to confront the fear and trying to rationalize those things. And it's not treated as a big character moment, but it is one. Yeah. I think it is. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you, <laughs> like, genuinely, if you re- remove the, the absurdity that is the movie from it, you've got this woman, this older woman, who in my mind when I was a kid was like 95 years old, but she was probably like, <laughs> she was probably about 10 years older than I am now. She's about, about in her early to mid fifties. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, we still have action stars now that are that age. Like she's the same age in that movie as Tom Cruise is now. <laughs> yeah. And um, so she keeps thinking that she's crazy and that she doesn't know how to deal with her, with her trauma or her, her PTSD of, of what's happened to her life. And every time in the movie, she decides to be like, fuck it, you know what? I'm going to keep, I'm going to start living life. I'm done with this stuff. I got to let it all go. The shark's like, to hell with that. I'm going to go eat one of your people. <laughs> and I think that be, the beach was one of those moments where she's like, you know what? I got to look at what's in front of me. I'm going to try to be a good grandma to this girl. And, and in that moment, she's living presently. And she's like, let go of a lot of shit. And then Michael gets attacked. And suddenly she's like, wait, we're way too close to the water. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back on the boat, the shark is fully eating the boat. But then it um, yeah. does one of many slow, painfully slow submersions in a pool of blood. Kind of undes- undescribed blood. Yeah, whose blood is that? Is that the boat's blood? <laughs> That's the shark's blood. The shark's They're blood. They're letting you know that sharks have a lot of teeth and they lose them when they attack. The shark was super pissed right. and did a whole lot of chewing on wood. So it was like aggressively flossing, and sometimes when people <laughs> yep. aggressively floss, there's blood there. The gums bleed. So that's, yes, the shark's gums were bleeding because he's out of practice. Sure. A- AJ, yeah. I was not ready for you to have a credible rebuttal to that comment. Nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy because like, for a while before I wanted to be an actor when I was a boy because of Jaws the Revenge, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted to you be can a play fan. with sharks, yeah, yeah. but you don't get eaten because Hooper didn't get eaten. That's right. That's he just true. swam around in the cage and then he went and hung out on the bottom of the ocean under a rock and waited for the rest of the movie to happen and was like, all right, I'll, we'll swim home. What a cop. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say I wanted to be like an international drug smuggler that kind of ferries people around on a plane illegally. Well, So you got the, you got the drug smuggler thing. Yeah, yeah, apparently the short stuff of him where it, there was like a drug smuggling subplot that, that wound up getting binned. This might be a good time to discuss the ways in which it diverges from the novelization. Yes, please. Yes, fire away, sir. <laughs> okay, which answers everything. So, yes, Hoagie is actually a CIA operative. Yes. Okay. okay. And um, he's... Despite um, being English? So, yeah, it's this sort of like farmed out thing. Like, he is actually former, like, RAS. Right, okay. And, okay. Um, well done, Mitch. And 
so he's like in one of those <laughs> one of those magic movie things you know like imf there's like this international cabal of, <laughs> of people that all super secret agents that work together um so he's like bond he's like sure. james bond and he is investigating and trying to take down this big rasta drug ring ah right okay and and so he's like super duper undercover and because he it's sort of like it's sort of like a throwback to there was a movie a couple years back i think it's called american made the tom cruise movie it was like Mm -hmm. based on a true story about this pilot that was drug smuggling for the cia more or less it was was taking drugs and then shipping guns so basically that guy is hoagie and that's what he's doing right and uh while gaining information also jake and michael's work you know, it's like expensive to watch Conk's mate, apparently. Right. Um, that very serious uh, marine biological work. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're verging on running out of money, aren't they? Yeah. So in the <laughs> novelization, they have an anonymous donor that's helping pay for this. Oh, wow. Okay. And it just so happens to be the drug lord that Hoagie is trying to stop. What is the drug lord getting out of that relationship? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, know. I, I genuinely want to watch it. I want to watch a two and a half hour cut of this film that explores all these strands in the requisite level of detail. Okay, so here's the next part that's that make that answers everything. Okay, I hope you guys are ready. You're sitting down. Yep. Yeah. So, so this guy, he is uh, deeply religious. His religion is voodoo, Rasta <laughs> stuff. Okay. Yeah. He he very much practices Santeria, and he has a priest. This priest, <laughs> it was crazy to me. They have guns and shit, so it's not like they can't get this stuff done. Right. But right. this priest decides to put a hex on Michael Brody because Michael doesn't want to be involved with this kind of stuff. Sure. And right. So basically, he does this ritual where it's like, what about this guy can we use to strike fear and terror into him? Because it's sort of like how they're laundering some of their money. Right. It's like making it seem like they're doing this legitimate ah, business okay. with science. And so they need to keep doing this. But they're like, you know what we'll do? It's like they take a cue from, from the end of the original Ghostbusters. You know, when, when Gozer's like, what's, what's your deepest, darkest fear? And they're all like, don't think about it. Don't, right. don't, what's, the most, what's the safest thing that we can think about? And unfortunately, he thought about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. So... In John's The Revenge, when they summon, like, what are Michael's deepest, darkest fears? It just so happens to be a great white shark. Right. right. So they put a voodoo curse on Michael. That possesses a shark. So the shark is doing the voodoo priest's bidding. That's why the shark is attacking the Brodies. It's not just some angry shark with its own agency and personality. So- it's basically like being puppeteered. By this voodoo priest. A drug dealer's voodoo priest associate outsources his bidding to a shark. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay. that'll, that'll scare him. That'll, that'll teach him. But what's amazing, and I can't remember what, unfortunately for the voodoo priest, this shark decides to go rogue. It's had enough. Uh, it's had enough always the of way. Being, being this, of being voodoo's bitch. I mean, and they are they are famously belligerent. They are. They have their own ideas, their own opinions, and um, some, I can't remember how it occurs where the voodoo priest ends up in the water near the shark. But he ends up in the water, and he's like trying to control mentally control the shark, tell the shark what to do, and the shark's like, "No, fuck you," and eats him. 
<laughs> and so, and so, basically, that's that's the part, the really brief part of the book where you get inside Bruce, where he's like, "No, nah, I'm going to get this shit done on my own. Fuck you. I'm going to eat you, and then I'm just going to go eat everybody." <laughs> And then we're in the third act of the movie. When you think Jaws the Revenge can't get any more preposterous, uh, it possibly could have. That, yeah. That's my and I don't, I, I legitimately don't know which came from, I don't know if the novelization happened before the script and then they were like, okay, well let's, I don't think that's what would have happened. But I do, what would make sense to me is uh, the person that was hired by the studio to write the novelization is like, uh, okay, so it's a haunted shark. Um well, that's no one's going to read that. So I got to add some other stuff. I don't know. That's the only thing that I keep coming back to is like, what if he's uh, possessed by a voodoo priest? Yeah. Let's just run with that. It's kind of like the plot to Weekend at Bernie's too. <laughs> it, it really is. Which came out <laughs> a little bit after, but pretty much in the same era. But I, I agree though. I think that I think that the notion of someone being hired to write it and doing kind of like retrospective universe building like that seems way more plausible in terms of like where that came from. Yeah. If that stuff existed in the movies, do you think people would hate the movie more or oh, less? Fu- fucking way less. Yeah. That's well, we get to have both. So I don't know. I read it right after I got my dad. Let me get it right after he took me to see the movie, okay. and I read it almost cover to cover. And so I was just like, oh yeah, but no. So it all made sense to me when I went and saw it again. Because I was like, no, that's why the shark's doing that. They just they cut that part out of the movie. It looks that's, so much better. It's an interesting question, though. It's like whether or like whether or not it would have fared better with audiences if they'd incorporated this. I think it would have. I think that like I think that it would have added an, a requisite extra level of ridiculousness that I think would have possibly won that would have. So that's something that I've always wondered about because I think why some people look back fondly on Jaws 3D is the absolute absurdity of it. Yeah. And the commitment level to being totally ridiculous. And they're like, yeah, it's just, it's insane. What this, it's why a lot of people really like Jason X. They just went there and they're like, I admire that they just decided to go in space in the future. Yeah. You know, my buddy Farmer, I just, I want, I've, I've asked him for years about like, what, what came, what, what made you think to do that? And uh, I, so I feel like Jaws of the Revenge is like a, it's like a 75% commitment to insanity. But at the same time, the story itself is so grounded in realism, at least in terms of the human interactions, minus the shark. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like one kind of checkmates the other because yeah. uh, because the kind of insanity doesn't feel fully baked. And if it was, yeah, and I think that uh, if it's, I think you either pair that all the way back and make it the kind of sensitive family drama that seems to be at the heart of the thing, or dial it all the way up. And I think, that, yeah, yeah, where it, where you you could be onto something. I think that where it falls down is maybe its unwillingness to commit to either one of those two things. I also think that people probably would be a lot more forgiving of even the concept of a haunted shark, were it not for one specific thing. Go on. That happens at the end of the movie. Okay. And it's when the shark starts screaming and roaring like a lion. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this when we were watching it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And he was a ten-year-old. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's all of a sudden like, Rrr. it sounds a little bit like Chewbacca. Yeah, it and does. It I does. don't understand the physics of it's doing like that dolphin thing that dolphins do at SeaWorld in the, in the dolphin shows where they're just on top of the water, yeah, just, just kicking their yeah. tail back and forth. Just all of a sudden there's this weird looking shark that doesn't look like any breed of shark ever made. <laughs> and it's just kind of like... 30 feet into the water and it's maybe 35 feet, 32, 35 feet long. And it's just up on top of the water being like, (laughs) I don't even know what that thing's doing. I mean, Jake says it, you know, and, and 
there's just a lot of stuff in there where there's just like really rich payoffs where they're also questioning Jake's like, nah, Jake's, Jake's gear don't crap out, man. And then he gets eaten. (laughs) And then Michael who doubted him the entire movie runs back inside this weird pirate ship that they have some sort of amazing cabin that at that age, I thought that every ship had some sort of like amazing wood paneled interior, like apartment inside it. And he's down there and he's like, no, this is Jake's gear. Jake said it wouldn't crap out. It won't crap out. It's like he's honoring his dead friend. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, okay. I don't understand. It's also got to be one of the weakest deaths ever. He fi- <laughs> he falls into the shark and gets bit in the butt. <laughs> well, the version, is weak. The version yeah. we just watched, Jake didn't die. Okay, so that's the other thing that I wanted to say. Because there's this, um, and part of the reason that I loved it was because of how much it educated me about stuff about movies and understanding movies. So, you know, I saw it in the theaters, and in the United States, Jake died. Right. And okay. the, the way that the shark died was the shark did get stabbed by the broken bow, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. So it was literally like a Moby Dick moment, and he broke the front of the boat off, and the boat sank. Right, yeah. And that's the U.S. version. And, and it's pretty much exactly the same. The difference being that it's the, the stuff that you see in the, in the U.S. version is them actually in the water, in, in actually in the Bahamas. So it all looks real, right? or real as it can be. Right. And when that movie came out on VHS, that was back when we still had video stores uh, in the States. And um, I remember hearing about a thing. I, I think I saw the box. And the, the box on the VHS for Jaws the Revenge is the exact same art that's on the novelization, where it's this actually like super cool drawing or painting of like, the back of Ellen Brody and the sharks out of the water. It's, it's, it's way less silly than the, than the actual movie when you're talking about it. And across the cover, like in the corner on the rental, it says special UK version not seen in US theaters. Okay. Oh, right. okay. I never knew before Jaws the Revenge that there could be like alternate versions of movies. I didn't know about like, I didn't know about director's cuts. Um, I didn't know that they shot alternate takes of things other than like doing takes i knew that but i didn't know that they would shoot entirely different scenes and then decide whether or not like when i was a kid i read these uh choose your own adventure books oh, yeah. like nonstop. and the reason i read them was because i loved like reading how the different stories would occur based on choices that the characters would make yeah and so i started sort of associating it with that because of jaws the revenge and so when i saw the, the uk version i got my sister to rent it sat down and watched it and I was like, Jake lives. And when I was 10, Jake was my favorite character in the movie. And I was like, this is awesome. And it wasn't until I was grown when I went back and rewatched it. And to be honest, I've always kind of watched this movie. It's not like I watched it 20 years ago and was like, I better bone up on this to be able to talk to you guys. I haven't watched it <laughs> since we discussed talking about it. Right. Like I didn't bone up on it. I didn't, I didn't do any homework. I was like, I really understand. I know this movie well enough that I, I don't have to sit down and rewatch it because I did less than a year ago just for fun, yeah, just sure. for shits and giggles. And now what's crazy is that now in the U.S., whenever it plays on – and it plays on cable pretty frequently here. <laughs> and whenever it does, it's only the U.K. version. Really? Okay. But when they sh- – yeah. So that version that, I, that was originally released in theaters here, it's like that part doesn't exist anymore. So there's like an entire generation of people that don't know that Jake is alive. And it's amazing, too, how he's just all of a sudden floating. And he's like, ow, 
flesh wound. When you see him getting drugged to the bottom of the ocean, like fist the fighting things, the things shark. Things do not look good. <laughs> no, because the shark's smiling. He's like, I'm going to take it. It's like I studied jujitsu, and it looks like it looks like Bruce is taking him down and rolling him for a submission. Like he's just he's got him in a leg lock. And he's going to take him down and ground and pound him a little bit. And Jake's putting up this valiant fight. Of, I don't know what he's doing. He's like punching him in the face. Um, <laughs> like, the, like he's going to take the shark out or something. And I, I do wonder, I'm like, how did they get that shot? Like how did they get this one shot of this, of this actor? It's got to be a stunt person. There's no way they let Mario Van Peebles do it. Where he's just going underwater and he's just like, fuck you. And he's punching the shark. He's like, let me out of here. This is annoying as shit. <laughs> It doesn't seem to have any lasting effect, particularly. Uh, he's still quipping away. He's, uh, he seems in yeah, pretty he's... good spirits. Uh, a few people yeah. in this film have an ability to still dispense one-liners under extremely stressful circumstances. Yeah, massive tissue and blood loss, but uh, no, still, <laughs> still feeling pretty good. Yeah, so him and Hoagie. So the, the movie basically is like, they're like, pretty much other than Sean, the death count in Jaws of Revenge is actually super low. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but definitely. It, characters cheat death a lot they i feel like the i feel like the mom picking up thea and putting her in front of her and dying that hero death on the banana boat i feel like that was a throwback to sean and jaws too yeah. when that girl puts him back on the boat and then she gets eaten uh, I'm, and i say eaten but she pretty much got swallowed in jaws too that's another thing that i can't abide by with like jaws three it, it's just swallows a grown man without eating him just puts <laughs> him in his mouth well, and that's and that's what saves the day later on. And then are are able to pull the pin off a grenade in the mouth of a guy that's being digested. Yeah, that's nonsense. And and everything's fine. Also um, worth mentioning. Sorry, much, uh, Just quickly. Also worth mentioning in the version we just watched, while the Neptune's folly does impale the shark, the shark very clearly explodes. That's what I'm saying. That didn't happen in the U.S. version. <laughs> like it. So it it, exactly. it made it made sense. In the U.S. version, that it's like what ended up happening was that it died from impalement, and that the shark was so big that it broke the bow of the ship, and that's why the ship sank. Like, no, um, but the, there, but the boat did not explode. Not, there was some no, the sort of magical. Exploded. I know there was some sort of magical dynamite inside the shark, or maybe it was the weird I don't know Radio Shack battery that Jake put inside him. Oh, I, yeah. I still don't know what that thing is, but it just had it had a flashlight that would go off every once in a while. It's like a strobe light, and I guess Jaws great white sharks hate strobe lights. Yeah. And uh, if you stab them, uh, they'll explode. Um, um, see, see the hero's death you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, yeah, obviously when Thea's on the banana boat. I want to talk about that because that's that's my favorite kind of uh, cringe shark moment because it's the time where it's most obvious that every time that the shark is supposed to bite something, it just clatters into it mouth first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like every every single every single person that dies in that movie, that's what happens. Like even Sean, it's like just you don't really see what happens. It's just magically get ripped his arm off, and then there there are no there's no uh, there's no shark uh, contact moments. There's no laws of physics adhered to in Jaws the Revenge at all. No, and I think that that's one of those things that I think that you just have to kind of get on board with almost immediately. For this, time. yeah. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, you're criticized. You're just looking to you're just looking to pick a, a fine movie apart. <laughs> that must be why. In the spirit of picking a fine movie apart, I really love the the sepia toned flashbacks just before the shark gets impaled. <laughs> Me too. And that was them trying to say, this is not Jaws 3. Just so that you know, remember Martin Brody. That was actually a really nice character moment 
for Ellen to see Michael and his daughter doing the same thing at the dinner table oh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that they did. The only problem with that, again, it's like they make these things that would be kind of like interesting ideas and then all of a sudden they're sepia. Yeah. There's yeah. this weird, like they're letting us know that, and, and let's look at it. So the first movie happens in 75. This is 87. So somehow in 12 years, it turned into something like from a different century. <laughs> she yeah. also uh, has flashbacks to things that she wasn't privy to. Um, I know. I yeah, love that a... when movies. I love it when movies do that. Yeah, so, so the, the only the only conclusion I could come to was that that was a flashback to when she watched Jaws. <laughs> yeah, they're still doing that in movies. By the way, Halloween, the new Halloween, did the same thing. Just all of a sudden was a flashback to a thing that that nobody was around for, other than us, the audience. But it's someone remembering what happened, mm. and and you're just like, whoa, wait, what? It, and they do the same thing at the end of Jaws the Revenge when all of a sudden it's Brody and he's like smile you son of a I feel like they were like well you know what he exploded the shark in the first Jaws so we have to go full circle That's right. so yeah. we'll just in the UK version we're just going to explode the shit out of this shark <laughs> so we can have that one shot that I still don't understand from the original Jaws there's parts of the shark falling through the water at the end of the first Jaws and I swear there's a piece of plywood inside the shark that's floating down that I don't understand. Like, you know, after he shoots the the tank and the yeah. shark blows up yeah. in the first Jaws and he laughs and he's like, ha ha! And then they cuts to the pieces of the shark sinking. That's right, with the, with the piano music and the blood. And the, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden there's a piece of it that looks like there's a huge two by four or some sort of wooden beam that's inside the shark that's falling with it. And I've never understood what that thing was. I also never understood based on of course, when you're a kid and you hear Quint's speech about the Indianapolis, uh-huh. like anybody else, when I was young and I heard about that, I, I started reading about it. And so in these movies, they seem to have no concern with blowing up a shark, which creates a whole lot of blood and sound and uh, splashing about in the water. <laughs> They're just like, oh, that one shark's gone. Like I think like a more realistic take would be if like – Brody and Hooper are trying to swim back to shore at the end of Jaws, and then they just start getting picked off by a bunch of sharks that were like, "I smell, I smell blood in the water." Oh, look! There's these two dudes kicking, trying to get out of here. Let's just that's that's easy. Let's eat that. The waters okay. of the Caribbean are not known for being short on sharks. I know that's the other thing. You've got bull, tiger, hammerheads. All of these things should have been in the waters, but somehow in the Bahamas of Jaws: The Revenge, there has never been one shark. <laughs> down there and the difference is is that for the most part great white sharks if we're going by science uh in the real world they don't really attack people but all of the sharks that are that would be in the caribbean love to eat people like aggressively that just are super horny yeah <laughs> <laughs> constantly also, uh, it's like forget fucking like rabbits, fucking like gunk. I also just remember there's a sepia flashback to something that happens two hours previously. I was gonna say that. Yeah, she has a flashback to the banana boat so like earlier that. Afternoon. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like genuinely, it's like if 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 that in universe is at three forty five p.m. That flashback happened at quarter past two. Yeah, yeah, and it's so insulting to the audience because they're like. Like they think that they're it's like I want to know who the test group was for the movie that was like, you know, it didn't make any sense. Like, did we just time travel? And they were like, (laughs) normally I would have I normally would have understood that Ellen was remembering something. But this movie is about a haunted shark. So I don't understand the rules. I don't know what's going on. So maybe if you guys could put like a sepia tone on it. 
then I'll go like, oh, okay, that's not happening again. That's Ellen remembering it. And she has some sort of mental stigmatism where she only remembers things in sepia. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that gets filtered through Ellen's mind. It's sepia. It's letting us know this woman's old. She's old as shit. Yeah. 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 She's 85 years old. Yeah. And so obviously, ultimately, they kind of get away. And um, Hoagie flies Ellen back to Amity Island. Presumably, yeah. Yeah, presumably. Uh, That's my understanding. Um, Yeah. And and then at this point, we're pretty much out. Yeah, pretty much. So, AJ, like we said, I watched this for the first time today. You're so lucky. I wish I had that experience. I wish I wish I got to watch it again for the first you, time. You know what, man? Honestly, like, um, kind of, kind of a running joke on the show is that Andy has seen everything, and I've seen borderline nothing. And <laughs> and and so much of the time, when I say, "Oh, I watched this for the first time," the reaction is that it's like, "Oh, like it's like I'm kind of jealous you're getting to see this for the first time now." Because I mean, I watched this and I was not sure what to think going in, and I think, that, <laughs> and I think that the way that we've spoken about it, I think. That that we've kind of hit on the problem what i think the problem is that i maybe wouldn't have spotted on my own steam which i think you spoke about earlier which is this unwillingness to either dial back or go all in on the crazy elements of the film (laughs) yeah and i I think that as a result i think that there's there's a kind of as either an insane shark film or a sensitive family drama at the heart of this thing and i think that its inability to readily commit to one of those two things is probably where it falls down. And I think that that's like, if you look at other shark movies, the ones that people like, <laughs> like Deep Blue Sea, they fully commit to like how ridiculously stupid their movie is. They're like, this is dumb as hell. And we're going <laughs> to let you know that it's dumb as hell and that we know that it's dumb as hell because you're going to let Samuel L. Jackson start to have this really stupid monologue and then a shark going to fly out of the water and eat him, smash him, rip him in half. And now you guys know that we're in on the joke. Sure. And it's like, I think that part of, I think a big part of that, if I was to look back on it now, understanding movies and, and how the sausage gets made is that it was a major studio tentpole franchise. Yeah. And so there were all these executives that were like, we're not, we can't fully commit when really, so you have like two different types of movies in there. You've got like a universal film that desperately wants to be a Golan Globus film, yeah, yeah, but definitely. they just won't let it be. <laughs> like they're they're like, oh, I had to do I actually had to do a double take to make sure that there was no canon involvement. I had to, to today, in fact, I went back and said, did this kind of come fall in amongst the kind of like when canon brought out like Masters of the Universe and when they did like the Superman films, yeah. Um, I had to go back. I was like, is this one of them? Did that get kind of caught up in this? And I had to go and check. But uh, yeah, definitely. I totally, totally get what you're saying there. Yeah. I respect that the actors were really going for it, though. None of them looked like they were embarrassed to be there. Like they were all giving it their all. And not only that, they weren't doing it in a sort of like with any self-awareness. Yeah. Um, like no one's no, no one's looking embarrassed to be there. and No one's phoning it in either. I don't think. No. They're really committed to the stuff that they're doing. And that's one of the things when people, um, people used to ask me, like, I-, I took management really late in terms of career. Like, I'd, I'd already been making movies for about a decade before I had any kind of representation. And um, I sort of begrudgingly took it. And when I started taking meetings, the questions were always the same. What kind of movies do you want to make? And, you know, like, where, what do you want to do? And I never had a better answer for it. So I've just kind of always said, I want to make 80s movies. And I think that people, when I say that, it sounds like a joke or they like, they think that what I mean is like some sort of like aesthetic 
of ridiculous fashion or something like that. But so the stuff that I love about Jaws the Revenge, which doesn't change the fact that it's like (laughs) it's got some problems. Uh, It's not perfect movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love how the performances uh, translate the way that they do. So the stuff that isn't the sort of like pulpy genre elements in it work really well. It's the same thing that I love. There's a certain quality to cinema in that decade across the board that I love. I mean, I tell people all the time how much I love Teen Wolf and they laugh and they think that I'm making a joke. And I'm like, no, but think about it. Someone was like, okay, we've got to make a movie about this nerdy teenager and uh, he's really bad at sports, but uh, he, uh, he, he, unbeknownst to him, he actually is a werewolf. And when he becomes a werewolf, uh, he becomes incredibly sexually appealing and really good <laughs> at basketball. And that's what the like, executives are telling like, the writer's room. And the writers are like, okay, I got it. We'll try to make the best one of those that we can. <laughs> and so, the, like, <laughs> so there's like long tracking shots in Teen Wolf. There's, there's some legitimately good teenage moments that now when you look back modern times are like problematic. But like in the time capsule of that era that are like really human and real. And um, if I was to give a criticism about like my field, about um, some of the, you know, in the last 10 years, some of what like I can't speak to uh, studio driven horror because uh, I've never made one. But a lot of what I saw for a few years there, uh, I would see independent genre films almost like they were crapping on the absurdity of, of it's almost like they they were embarrassed and it translated through the work where they were like we know this shit's stupid uh it's beneath us or you know so to me like i would see i would see certain movies and i was like oh what you guys are doing is like the karaoke version of a movie that came out in the 80s right so you're kind of making fun of it but you also want to attach yourself to it so that people look at your version of it favorably and what I love about 80s cinema, like across the board, like even when you look at like Golan Globus canon movies, they're doing the best they can. Like there's nobody sitting there like, being like, fuck this movie. Yeah. Like everybody across the board is taking their shit seriously. And I, I, I love that about them. I love that they, there just was a sincerity level. I know it's crazy to say that there's a sincerity level in a movie called Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> but there's a sincerity level. And and you can only get that through like the actors. Mm. And if any one of them had been winking, then I wouldn't be able to say that. You know, like Michael Caine could have been in there and been like, "By the way, I'm an Oscar winner. I know this movie's dumb as hell." But you never see that in no. his performance. No, it's, you know? it's incredibly earnest. Yeah, and and it's why like when people ask me about like actors that I love, and I was like, "Oh, if you mean you want me to stereotype a type of acting concept?" Well, I've always really liked, more times than not, I've really enjoyed English actors. And part of the reason that I do is because their type of performance dynamic is almost always content appropriate. So, like, they switch up what they're doing, uh, depending on what it is. And for years, I never really saw it in American actors. Like, you would see, like, a serious actor doing a comedy, and all of a sudden, that's what the movie was about. It's the serious person being funny. But there were certain actors that I would see do it that still made it work, like Philip Seymour Hoffman. He would be in a dumbass movie like Along Came Polly, but he was swinging for the fences. And he he could be an incredibly subtle, nuanced performer, and he could also be an incredibly awesome villain in a Mission Impossible movie. (laughs) And I loved that about Michael Caine. 
And I also just was like, oh, I love this. Love, it's the last Starfighter's in Jaws of Revenge, but now yeah. he has a beard, so we know he's a grown-up. <laughs> My wife was quite taken with Lance Guest when we were watching this. She said he had eyes like a Mykonos sky. <laughs> he's got a doll's eyes. <laughs> blackest eyes. <laughs> so, Mitch, you never actually said, what did you what did you make of the film? Um, I feel like I like it more off the back of this conversation. Right, okay. I feel like I, I, like, I, feel like I've got, I think that I understand the flaws of it in a way that I didn't before. Okay. I think going into the conversation, I wasn't sure if I would go back to it. Off the back of this, I would say I almost certainly will. Oh, good. What about you? Well, uh, Jaws is my favourite film of all time. Okay. Uh, I have a Jaws tattoo on my leg. Mm -hmm. I love Jaws 2 as well. I do. Uh, sorry to say, Jay, but I've got a soft spot for Jaws 3 that I can't quite quantify. You should talk to somebody about that. <laughs> but I've got all the it's time. It's not right. I've got all the time in the world for Jaws of Revenge. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, I think the performances are great. Like you said, nobody's nobody's phoning it in. Everybody is feeling it. And there are some genuinely heartwarming, touching moments in there. And then you've got what is by now a kind of ridiculous kind of caricature of a shark. Um, and it just makes all that stuff just ten times better. It's I think it's just so fun. Uh, yeah, I I guess that's what it boils down to for me is like I think it's a I think it's really fun. I don't need any movie to be like Oscar caliber. Yeah, and I think there's a way to be sincere and for there to still be problems with it. And mm -hmm. I think you can live in an era where people look at something and it's it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. And it seems to me like almost always, and I think social media has a big hand to play in this. Definitely. But I think that we're in an age where if someone reads a hot take or they didn't totally agree with it, their opinion isn't, well, I disagree. I had some problems with it. Their, their statement instead becomes, fuck that movie. <laughs> and um, I just think that, that they're like giving, doing themselves a disservice because I think it's so many movies where – you look at it, it's like, I knew I was coming on this thing, and I'm, I'm not sitting here trying to tell anybody that, like, Jaws the Revenge is a four-star film. But what I will say is that Jaws the Revenge, they tried their best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and as long as a movie tries its best, and to me seems like a sincere effort, and there's some elevated moments in it, I can forgive a whole lot of other stuff. I'm mean, um, grew up on 80s cinema. <laughs> I am. I think that what you're saying about kind of the way that people kind of talk about films these days there being a kind of this element of it being kind of binary yes or no i think there's something to that me and a couple of my friends um have started talking about the way people categorize things is like the netflix scale when you scroll past something on netflix on average it almost always has either five or one stars because yeah. no, because no one takes the time to score something three if they thought it was a three-star film yeah. right you know and really almost everything is probably a three to three and a half star film Yes, exactly, and I think, and um, but I think that you're right. I think that there is this tendency or this need to come up on one side of the line, and I think that that cuts out a lot of nuance in the middle in the way that people talk about films. Yeah, it's sort of like when when and when Andy was first asking about you know like is there a movie you want to talk about? Once I knew that we weren't going to be talking before Halloween, that's what made me think of Jaws: The Revenge. But before, I would have wanted to talk about Halloween Four for exact for very similar reasons where i was like i'm really really fond of halloween 4 okay there's problems the mask is fucked up um, <laughs> it's really really fucked up yeah. but like i love the way that the movie starts halloween 4 is probably my second or third favorite halloween film oh wow okay um because there's just some stuff in it again where it's the exact same thing i would say about jaws revenge they did their best
like that sequence when they're getting when the doctors are getting him out of the hospital, mm-hmm. the beginning, and they cut into the original theme, and all of a sudden he thumb brains somebody right. to death. I was just like, that's tight. And then all the townspeople act like how they really would in the small town. They're like, Mike Myers is back. Fuck that shit. We're gonna shoot everybody. Get all the drunk dudes, at the drunk, the drunks at the bar, get in the back of pickup trucks, and start driving around, killing the shit out of people. And they lock themselves in a house, and it and it fails. It reminded me structurally of Aliens, where they had to sort of like barricade themselves in and survive the night. Yeah. Um, and I love that sort of conceit, and I feel that way about most movies from from the decade of the 80s okay. and i wish that people were like more in like that people liked talking about that stuff more instead of it yeah. seeming like it's some sort of a, a character assassination if you like the wrong thing or yeah. uh, the other thing that i really hate is when people and i think we're getting away from it now but there was a long period there where if someone found out that you didn't watch something yet man you got a lot of shit like they're like you fucking idiot you haven't seen that yet you fucking loser instead of <laughs> instead of being like oh that's awesome i can't i can't wait for you to see that the first time and like i and say that's, that's, that's that's what's happening with me right now when i'm watching someone's stuff for the first time genuinely about 90 percent of the reaction i get is that it's people saying it's like oh, i can't believe you're getting to see that for the first time now it, and they're excited for you yeah, yeah and it's yeah, so nice yeah. I mean, through doing yeah. this podcast, you, you saw American Women from London for the first time. That's true. And you've just seen loads of stuff for the first time. And yeah. the, the very nature of the films that we're bringing on, sometimes it elicit a kind of binary response from people. And there's been some pretty spirited debate on that very thing. Like, yeah. AJ, before we wrap up, I want to take a sec. Obviously, um, our listeners will be familiar with your work for like a, a whole load of stuff. But what have you got going on right now? Anything you want to talk about? Um, yeah, so I, I think it's out. I think Dead Night is out over there now. Um, yeah, I but I made a movie. Uh, Barbara and I made a movie. like a To me, it's sort of like a midnight movie. Uh-huh. I, I never have a problem with... Uh, I don't know, it's the truth. I don't mind people not liking a movie that I worked on. Mm-hmm. It, the criticism has never bothered me. My only... If, if, I, if I like it, then it's fine for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I don't like it, it doesn't matter how many people enjoy it. I just have to keep that opinion to myself. I'm like, oh, I like it's great that you liked it, and I'll be like, that movie sucked internally, <laughs> but I don't say it externally because I don't want to take that away from me. That's one thing that always bugged the shit out of me is when you watch people make movies, and whenever they're making their new one, a filmmaker is apologizing for their last one. It's like you know somebody actually enjoyed that thing. Like somebody enjoyed the 90 minutes that they spent and made them forget about their problems for 85 minutes. And you're crapping on them for liking it now. So that's not cool. Um, I say that because uh, Dead Night, and it used to be called Apple Cart, it seemed like to really oh, yeah. divide some people, at least over here. Okay. Some people thought that it was, um, there were some real, real critical um, statements about it. And that's fine with me. I happen to really like it. It's exactly what we were trying to make. It was sort of like a midnight movie. It's kind of absurd. It's sort of like a monster movie in the snow. And, um, and I, that's, I think, you know, I think it, I think it was at Fright Fest uh, yeah, this summer. It was. Um, but that's out. I finally made a Christmas horror film. Um, <laughs> and uh, I did that a while back called A Man in the Dark. And that's getting ready to probably hit a festival in the next couple of months. What I'm really excited for about that is that um, pretty much other than my kid and my wife, my very best friend in the world, a guy I grew up with and... A guy I watched all of these horror movies with, and a guy I, I started acting with, who's an actor who was in a movie I did a long time ago called The Signal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And 
I think he gives one of the, I'm, 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 I'm a fan of the acting in that movie. Um, I'm biased, but I know those guys and I like their work, but I love uh, Scott Poitras's work in that movie, the guy that played Clark. And um, he and I play brothers in this new movie, A Man in the Dark. And I'm so stoked for it to come out because I can't wait for people to see his work. He's the best actor I've ever worked with. And I've known him since I was like 13. And uh, we grew up in the same town. We went to the same high school. We went to the same college. And um, I'm excited for people to see that one. I'm also getting ready to start shooting a comedy, actually, with the guy that uh, directed Dead Night. We actually started picking off our first couple of shots the past couple of days. It's like an after hours style dark comedy about an Uber driver uh, right. who gets uh, the ride from hell, like an all night, up all night kind of thing. And because uh, we're both really big fans of some of these particular kinds of movies, um, these sort of tropes that we've, that you guys and I've been kind of been talking about for the past hours, like we really like some of that stuff. And um, obviously, we would like to give our own take on those sorts of things. Again, sort of like 80s movies. That one's called Night Drive. And we start shooting that one in about a week. Cool. Cool. Uh, AJ, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Hey, thanks for having me. And sorry about all of the rescheduling. Oh, no, kept don't occurring no, back no, and no, forth. Because no, no. I was in the middle. They kept flying me back for Satanic Panic. Oh, of course. So yeah, I was back well. and forth on that one. <laughs> I guess I forgot to talk about that one. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. My friend Chelsea called me about satanic panic she uh directed it and um yeah I, I was like you don't need to say anything else like she was like it's like this it's this horror comedy um it, it's about a, a pizza delivery girl and i was like hold up i did a movie that sounds similar it's called house of the devil um <laughs> am i is this like a is this a play on that and she was like let me just send you the script and i read it and was like oh okay it's not even in remotely the same universe of type of movie <laughs> nor type of role and again, it felt to me like in America, I don't know if you guys ever got it, but there's this uh, in the 80s and 90s, there's a network called USA. It's still around now, but they had a thing in the late 80s and early 90s called USA Up All Night. And it's where I saw a lot of movies that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten to see because they were edited. And my parents wouldn't let me rent like horror movies. But USA Up All Night is like the first place that I saw like Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bowlerama. I saw like Night of the Comet for the first time on USA Up All Night. And when I read the script for Satanic Panic, I was like, oh, my God, Grady Hendrix wrote like a USA yeah. Up All Night movie that's just totally balls to the wall fun and super, super does not have does not have the same problem that Jaws the Revenge did. It is completely committed to what it's doing. Um, and it has a bonkers cast. And it was amazing to get to uh, do some scene work with Rebecca Romaine. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be tons of fun. Chelsea killed it. Uh, Fangoria. It's, it's, it was a really cool experience for me to go do my wardrobe fitting in Dallas in the offices of Fangoria. Oh, cool. you know, I'm sitting around. I'm like, I'm going to steal so much shit out of here soon. <laughs> As the wardrobe person leaves, why didn't I bring a bigger bag with me? I could have gotten so much shit out of here. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. We just wrapped up shooting that one. So it's in post right now. So I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I know that it is. Excellent. Yeah, AJ, thanks for taking the time to do this with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, man, that's oh, my pleasure. And, and lovely, to, lovely to speak to you again. You too. Cool. We, we just had a big run of Halloween films. Maybe we'll have you back on uh, next Halloween and you can, uh, Halloween you can talk Halloween for. I will. I will. <laughs> thanks, All right, man. best to you guys. Cheers, best. AJ. Thank you, man. I got to talk to you later. So I kind of feel like we painted with slightly broader strokes than we normally do on that one, but also 
got a little bit more analytical than we normally do as well. Yeah, it's been a while since we had an episode that was kind of scholarly and kind of like, <laughs> far less about uh, dick jokes and farts. Yeah, gonna, yeah, and it's nice to have one of those every now and again. Um, a huge thank you to AJ Bowen taking the time to stop by and yeah, talk to us with Angelus. Yeah, massive thanks, and like I said, thank you, AJ. Great to speak to him again. Yeah, and um, I guess uh, we are once again at the end of an episode. Episode 30. 30 episodes, Mitch. 30, 30. weeks. 30 weeks. 30 weeks. Twice a week. Looking at, at my least. face for an hour plus on the well, other side I've of the Well, I've, uh, I've been lucky a couple of times and not had to look at my face. I'm thankful for those little breaks every now and again. Yeah, Mitch. yeah. Even God got to rest one day a week. <laughs> um, we will, of course, be back on Monday with another mini-sode. And I think you know what to expect from them by now. Um, but in case you don't. In case you don't, we will be taking a look at my progress through the Shockwaves 100. We'll be talking about what we've been watching. We will, of course, take um, a minute to take a look at some of your feedback. We'll be recommending you a podcast. And we will, of course, be playing Mitch's Pitches. That's Mitch's Pitches! It sure is. So we will be back Monday, 8 a.m. for that 8 a.m. GMT. Join us then if you can. And in the meantime, don't forget, I've always wanted to make love to an angry welder. Goodbye. It's all you've ever wanted since you were a small boy. Correct. <laughs> You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. 